What up, what up, Meepsters? This is Ryan Rainbro, and if you're hearing this, that means you're about to listen to one of the 99 free episodes of the Meep Meep podcast available wherever you cast pods. But keep in mind that there are new and unreleased episodes of the show on patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. So you'll want to sign up there to hear future episodes and also other side projects like Choo Choo, the show about soundtracks and contribute suggestions for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. Bye! Welcome to Meet Meet, the Roadrunner podcast, where each week we discuss an album in the canon of Roadrunner Records and how it informs music today. Let's roll. What up, what up, and welcome to episode 7.5 of Meet Meep, the Deluxe Redux, Delu Redu. My name is Ryan Rainbow, and we are just whipping and zipping in all stems and stamens around here last week. My friend Dan was nice enough to let me tell him a tale about Buzz Ovens' 1994 sole release on Roadrunner Records entitled Soar, which was critically acclaimed with a legacy of pain, violence, and debauchery. But lots of great feedback from that episode, and arguably the most vital chatter was from Brian Hill, who played in Buzz Oven himself on that very album. I originally wanted Brian on that episode, but due to some scheduling conflicts, it wasn't able to happen. However... He was able to make some time to talk with me to right some wrongs, and that's what I'm presenting to you today. This interview is really great with stories about the origin of the band, the reason behind the dot in the name, recording with Billy Anderson, and even run-ins with Sebastian Bach. Remember? VH1? Video hits one. So you'll definitely want to stop what you're doing and give him your full attention, but to do that, you might need to make sure you've got the proper nutrition for the stamina needed to take this ride. And the best way to get that is this week's sponsor, TrueNutrition.com. True Nutrition is an award-winning protein and supplement company that I've used for years. And once you try them, you'll know why. With various vegan options, custom blends, and delicious flavors, you'll look forward to your protein shakes. In fact, I'm kicking back some cinnamon toast rice protein with digestive enzymes as we speak. And as you know, those are some of my favorite enzymes. On top of a great product, the prices can't be beat, but we're about to beat them. Because with promo code RAINBRO, R-A-I-N-B-R-O, you'll save 5%. They only wanted to save you 3%. And I said, no, True Nutrition, come on. The Meepsters out there, they deserve better. Three ain't enough, man. I need five. So promo code RAINBRO for 5% off. Go to truenutrition.com and make it yours. But the preheat button light is off, so the buzz is ready. Let's get to my chat with Brian Hill, formerly of Buzz Oven. Staying on brand with how raw and rough that record is, this interview was recorded entirely on my BlackBerry. And much like you can hear the desperations and the songs found on Soar, you can hear the sound quality, desperate for a wireless fidelity connection. And on top of that, it's a really great interview. And I can't thank Brian enough for being so open and candid about a band and time that people are definitely interested in. And I believe it starts with some, uh, we'll say, amendments to last week's episode. So here's Brian Hill. The uh, geographic origins were 
we're in Charlotte, North Carolina, and not Wilmington, North Carolina. The connection of the band to Wilmington was T. Roy Medlin, who was the singer, or is currently the singer for Sour Vane. Uh, he, he helped the band out by, um, by press and play on, on some of the old tape decks we would use for, for samples between songs and uh, live shows. Uh, he was he was from Wilmington, and then Dixie Dave, who replaced me in the band, he was from Wilmington as well. So that's one thing as far as the origin story goes. I moved to Charlotte in 1991 from Chattanooga area to join the band. There was no bass player. Fred Hutch was in Sewer Puppet with Kirk, and Sewer Puppet broke up. Fred was going off to college. And he couldn't play bass in the band, so it was just Kirk and the drummer Scott. And they needed a bass player. Fred had set in on a demo tape that that they had made, and Fred helped record it because Fred owned a four-track. Kirk didn't own a four-track. And so Fred set in on bass and, and helped record it, and that was what came about as the Buttrash demo. That was the very first buzz I've ever recorded. And so I heard that when I met Kirk and Kirk was a roadie with a few bands from California on small, on very small records, bleeding nuisance and a band called Schlong. And they came through. Schlong? The band was called Schlong? Like, uh, they're still around today. Uh, the Mello brothers, Dave Mello, the drummer from Schlong was, uh, also the drummer for operation Ivy. Oh, okay. Wow. That band. Yeah, of course. And so they're from right here in the Bay area. And so I was working in Dalton, Georgia, at a place called the Wall Skate Park, and I had helped uh, put on shows there. We all hung out that day and that night, and he played this butt rest demo and said, hey, I need a bass player. Well, my bass gear was there at the skate park, so we started jamming, and we stayed up all night, and he's like, when I get back from tour, why don't you come up here to Charlotte and, uh, and jam? And I had been to Charlotte a few times with family friends that had relatives there and we would visit with them so i was familiar with it and i just left i just graduated high school and that was it i said okay i'm gonna go up and try out i did for a long weekend it all worked out left my gear there went back and loaded up my car for my clothes and stereo and my record collection and moved up to charlotte i know that you had mentioned uh, pat grumple Pat was a great guy and a great friend of ours that would go on the road with us and he would do live vocals with us and record vocals with us, help us with the gear. He was an amazing merchandise salesman. He could sell a t-shirt to somebody wearing eight t-shirts, you know, it was, uh, <laughs> it, was, it was, it was a great experience. And, and he was a great friend that met here in, in Oakland and uh, he's in the Lake Tahoe area these days, but, on Soar, there was our second guitar player, Buddy, and Buddy has since passed away, I believe in 2002, uh, from a drug overdose. But he was a young guy, uh, maybe a year younger than I was or am, and uh, he was a he was a good friend of ours. But uh, shortly after Soar came out, we uh, we let him go, uh, fired him from the band. Basically, we just felt like he was. Uh, not holding up his end of the bargain and it wasn't anything, uh, you know, acrimonious or anything. We, we remained friends even after that. And I was in a band called the men of porn in probably 
the year 2000, and it's about the last time I saw Buddy in Austin, Texas. He was working at Emo's in Austin. Just had a lot of fun. He was a really good guy. All right, so we've clarified the site of origin of the band and your place within it. Let's talk about the record release show at CBGB's. The idea, when when Roadrunner dropped the band, they had they had given us a little bit of money to actually make a second record. And we recorded with uh, Sleep's former live sound engineer, Shane, in Brooklyn, New York, at a studio, I believe it was called Fast Lane or Speedway or something like that. Um, we were not dropped at the, the CBGB's uh, record release show for Soar. So why did Roadrunner end up dropping the band after the one album? Probably due to poor record sales and uh, poor quality of the music that we recorded for the follow-up that we recorded in Brooklyn and I just mentioned was really lackluster and the band was falling apart um, internally at that point due to drug use and um, the music that we recorded for the follow-up wound up being released by Relapse Records as the, uh, I believe it was Violence from the Vault or uh, was the title of that from, from Relapse. So, And one of those tracks wound up on being a split 7-inch with Sour Vein as well. So... Um, I think those two things, the band really falling apart internally, and then the music being produced being subpar. So I think that's that's really it. The downfall internally within the band happened quite fast. Those last months of 1994 and the first half of 1995 were just uh, just terrible for the band as far as we had lost a member. We had lost our second guitar player. Um, at that point, um, our replacement second guitar player, Johnny Brito, had quit the band. Uh, mid-tour, left the band then. And so we were searching for another guitar player. Hard, hard road. And so there were a lot of, um, you know, just the upheaval of the drug use. And, and then, you know, the seeking out of, uh, rehab centers and what have you for for Kirk, and that really not working out led to me leaving. As a few other things I had discovered, bookkeeping wise, that were a little off, and I just decided to leave. So, the tour support being pulled for the Neurosis tour was that not done at the same uh, CBGB show, or why was that? Can you tell me more about that? It wasn't pulled at the time of that CBGB show, there was certainly an embarrassment because of the uproar that Kirk caused at the bar, the Ace Bar uh, party, prior to the show itself. That led to lots of hand-wringing and second-guessing by Monty, who signed the band initially. And so starting to have some regrets on, you know, what, what they had actually done, which was signed a bunch of naive youngsters that had very little self-control uh, for 
drug use is, you know, as far as Kirk's uh, addiction and, and what have you, it really, it really did shake things up. So Kirk had warrants for his arrest in a, in a state or two and uh, was unable to actually travel abroad. So he couldn't have a passport issued. And that really led to, uh, yeah, Roadrunner decided to pull tour support. They had funded the tour we had done with Quar in 1994 in October, November that year. Uh, they had paid a lot of money to help us record the actual album of Sword. And, um, and so they had invested quite a lot of money to that point. And after seeing all of these, these things happen, drug use, uh, being evicted from, uh, from certain clubs, uh, being banned from certain clubs, you know, it, it just really made sense for them to not spend any more money on the band. Any tour that was going on, there was always some type of situation, you know, very frequently at clubs that was unsavory or destructive, primarily about property damage. Speaking of uh, unsavory, the story that Kirk told in an interview for Exclaim Magazine about wanting to go buy a lot of heroin and shoot up at the Roadrunner offices was uh, a lie, actually. I mean, it was hyperbole, if anything. But we didn't have some type of agreement. We didn't talk about that. It, it wasn't something we spit and shook hands on, you know. It was it was just something that, that maybe came up in his mind as something maybe he either fabricated out of whole cloth or what have you, but it was never a plan to do that. I would say that there was probably uh, drugs, illegal drugs consumed by the band at Roadrunner offices, but I don't know if, uh, you know, heroin was shot in the bathroom or, or if drugs were just uh, consumed, you know, outside in the, in the van or what, but there was never a plan to shoot up and die. And through my entire life, I've never uh, intravenously used drugs. And so I was always uh, around seeing that happen and was super turned off. And as a young guy, I was scared to shoot drugs didn't make any sense to me, but I saw these other cats doing it. And, uh, I was just, you know, nonplussed. It wasn't my thing. It was theirs. And I didn't get into that. But as far as, you know, shooting up drugs at the Roadrunner offices, it just didn't make any sense to me. And it was never a plan or, you know, something, um, that Kirk talked about with us. Maybe it was something that he wanted to do, but it was never anything I wanted to do or be a part of. All right. Well, now that we've talked about how you left the band and then how, of course, the band left Roadrunner, let's kind of Tarantino this and let's talk about how your relationship with Roadrunner began. How did you get on the label's radar? Yeah, Monty was a great guy. He was super supportive uh, early on. Uh, I think he had caught us at uh, the Wetlands or the Bank Club or one of these New York clubs we had played at. Um, I think we had done a CMJ uh, showcase of sorts. We had played a couple of those in either 
92 or 93 or both. And uh, he came and caught us at one of those New York clubs and talked to us about doing this stuff. At that time, we had had a couple of uh, EPs out, several seven-inch records, and a full-length album for Allied Recordings out at that point. And um, so SOAR was the sophomore full-length effort. Uh, I still have some of that CMJ paraphernalia. And, uh, you know, we had we had played, and that would have been in October, I believe, of 93. And um, by the beginning of 94, we had been in contact with, uh, with Roadrunner. And I believe we, we signed in early that winter, the beginning of 94, and started recording uh, later on in the spring in San Francisco at uh, Brilliant Studios with, uh, with some of that wonderful Roadrunner money. Yeah, they were, uh, they were very nice, very supportive. But again, once the money started coming in from Roadrunner, once the, the shows started paying better, were better attended, once the merchandise started selling a little bit, we had more money in our pockets and more and more drugs were coming in. And I can say that I certainly uh, dabbled in drugs and, and enjoyed drugs. But at the time, I was more into amphetamines than downers. And I was doing a lot of driving at the time, so it just made sense for me. Anyway, we were working hard. We were traveling all around and, and really trying to make it go of um, of having the, the band be the sole source of income for all of us and uh, paying our way with that. So we were really trying to play every gig we could get. And we would self-sabotage by having, uh, you know, some property damage or, or equipment being broke at the club. And oftentimes there would be some type of uh, uh, brawl that would that would happen. It was a it was a different time in the '90s for rock and roll. It was dangerous in some places with skinheads coming out causing trouble and fights and whatnot. Walk into a club and just start punching people. Trouble always followed Buzz Evan. That's for sure. I wouldn't hesitate to say that we uh, embraced it. You never knew what was going to happen. Yeah, I would say the Buzz Ovens legacy is that uh, that those violent shows and also, of course, the the drug use, which I know one you're maybe not super proud of because you're not directly affiliated with it by what you're saying. But I, I'm sure at the time it it was somewhat cool. People think that your band was dangerous. I mean, you're a rock and roll band. You don't want them to think you're soft. Well, you know, uh, I'll say this, Ryan. A lot of that uh, infamy was attributed to the band later in early magazine articles, what have you, there wasn't a lot of press for the band prior to my leaving in 19, in the summer of 1995. Uh, so for those first four years, 1991 to 1995, you didn't really have the internet. You had word of mouth. You had people doing tape trading. You had fanzines people were doing in their garage or basement. And so a lot of that word of mouth traveled and it would have been more at that time about excitement or yes, uh, some danger, but the actual depravity and violence and uh, severe drug abuse, that was, that was kind of later on, you know, that was something that, that people started uh, talking about 
after the first several years because honestly it wasn't it wasn't around the first few years of the group we were all partying you know people had drugs for us here and there and uh it was a part of the band but it wasn't the only part the music was first and foremost and when that started to fade when the work ethic started to dwindle that's when it was no more fun you know you know we had to have a big intervention and an old an ultimatum certainly about drug use and and uh, and putting the music first so when when that offset you know the music and and the ferocity that would come about from just a bunch of kids getting their their kicks playing heavy music you know trying to get out their angst or their daddy issues like i was you know it was just stuff <laughs> you wanted to to uh to have you sure if if you were lumped in with great groups like i hate god or acid bath you know that was a great thing this was pre doom or stoner rock or sludge none of that really existed that it, it was just a crossover in my mind of of you know a lot of times we would say that it was a cross between Black Sabbath and Black Flag's My War Side 2. We were not trying to be derivative of the Melvins or of Neurosis, but those bands were certainly influential in what we were doing, you know. We were we were trying to write our own thing, and to us, it didn't exist yet, what we were trying to do, so we had to make it for ourselves. But it still remains, uh, you know, a very low-selling uh, cult band. There's not a lot of... Uh, folks in the world that that own these uh recordings i can't believe i'm talking to you about this you know almost 30 years later it's crazy i was 18 years old when i stepped into it you know and i didn't know dumb dumb kid from the sticks of uh rural tennessee and i didn't know what was going on all i wanted to do was play music and travel and that group allowed me to do that but as far as the sore record goes you know as much as the legacy of the band may be those other aspects, this album is, is great. And not only that, but you kind of touched on it with, even though it's a low-selling album, maybe, or I shouldn't say it's low-selling. It's not a, it didn't go gold or anything like that. But <laughs> you'd be hard-pressed to find a review of Soar that isn't just praising it for being incredible. I mean, I, I, I know because I went through <laughs> through the right archives. I, yeah, I, I appreciate that, too. And, and you know, it was... Uh, it was a period for us that was we were finally feeling like we were uh, coming into our own musically as far as creating our own sound or style that wasn't as uh, as i mentioned earlier derivative of our largest and most influential um, bands that we looked up to so it was a period for us that was you know really coming in there we were starting to sell out clubs that we had struggled to do before we were starting to have uh, better opportunities for tour offers i think i turned 22 years old on uh midway through that promotional tour of soar with uh guar the music it was nasty and raw sometimes slow and sludgy sometimes a little more up tempo, but it was certainly uh, the angst that we felt for 
society in general and the nonconformity that we all felt, we really wanted to pour that into the music itself. You know, hence all of the samples and uh, horror movies or, or, you know, violent audio of, of interviews or, you know, we were all into horror movies at the time and it was, uh, it was just a lot of fun to have something different. You didn't hear a lot of samples uh, on records at that time. And for us, we used them live as well because it was a chance to, uh, you know, tune the guitars, which often took what seemed like hours when you're on stage with people staring at you. It's like, a, you know, I mean, a little interlude between songs to let those samples annoy people while we tuned our guitars, <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, speaking of annoying, I did propose the idea that the dash or dot or asterisk or whatever in the name is just to be annoying. What is the purpose of that in the actual name of the band? Oh, okay. So, so that story, when Kirk started the band, he, um, he was roommates with Scott Majors, who was the first drummer. He had left a band called Sewer Puppet, and he was living in this big house in Charlotte, North Carolina, had several roommates. Scott was one. Scott was a drummer. So they decided to start a band together, and Kirk came up with the name Buzz of him. And so he was he was doing some, some printmaking. He was working silkscreen at a print shop. And so when he lifted the words buzz oven out of a dictionary or some book that he found, originally the, the word buzz was one word because it's one syllable. The word oven was two syllables, hence it was separated by that dot. So the original separation came from stealing the font from a dictionary to make stickers and labels and just have have the name itself printed onto a sticker or a t-shirt or whatever and decided to print some of his own band stickers on the machinery with the stock there, stealing from his boss. And Kirk liked the font and he decided to to leave that dot between the V and the E and oven. And not only was it annoying to people like you it was annoying <laughs> to me too you know when we were trying to you know come up with new new fonts and new designs for this we decided uh, to just leave it in there or at least i never fought him on it about changing it once i joined the group so anyway that's how it is boring as it sounds that's how it evolved now that actually it's, sounds really punk rock i think that sounds cool <laughs> i think that's better than uh than what I thought it was going to be. So I appreciate you sharing that story. I don't know if that's ever been told or even asked, but there it is. That's uh, the way it came about. So you go to record Soar with Billy Anderson, who I know you personally would work with a few years later in Acid King, right? That's right. We had worked with Billy on our first album, To a Frown. And we had done so at the behest of John Yates, who owned and operated allied recordings but he himself at the time although he owned the record label he also was an employee at alternative tentacles in san francisco so we decided to give a listen to some of billy's work and the 
work that we listened to prior to going to recording was Sleeps Volume 1, which was put out by uh, Very Small Records in conjunction with Tupelo Records. And we listened to it and loved it. And we came out to San Francisco uh, on a national tour. Probably We were probably out for two months or so. I mean, just an exhaustive, exhaustive tour. And we had one or two seven inches out by that time, maybe a compilation seven inch out, and decided to record our first full length uh, with Allied Recordings in San Francisco at Razor's Edge Recording Studio with Billy Anderson. And that would have been... I believe April of 1993. And we recorded with Billy. We had met him. We'd actually had a crazy, crazy, hellacious barnstorming tour of the Bay Area, which is where I live now. It's where I relocated after I left Buzz of them, uh, moved from Richmond, Virginia to Oakland, California, and I'm still here today. So uh, 25 years later, I'm still here. And, uh, John Yates is still here too, but Allied Recordings is no more. But anyway, Razor's Edge was a famous studio. The Melvin did some recording out there. Um, and then we played, we came out on tour. We stayed for over a week in the Bay Area and we had played a show in San Francisco at a bar called the Brave New World. And that show was with the Obsessed and with Sleep. And it was amazing. Sleep knocked my songs off. The Obsessed were amazing as well. And at that point, Sleep was a local band out here. Um, they came up from San Jose to play in San Francisco with us. We also played 924 Gilman Street in Berkeley. We had played a show in Oakland, um, not three blocks away from where I'm sitting right now. Um, in North Oakland, there was a bar called Your Place 2, and we played there. I was underage bartender was underage. Oakland was like the Wild West at that time. Uh, so we recorded three days, uh, rough tracks, uh, vocals, overdubs, everything, mixed the whole record in three days with Billy. First time we'd ever seen Pro Tools in a studio at that point. It was really um, in the nascent stages. Pro Tools was just beginning and Billy was great. He, uh, he was very fast. Sure, if we had to do it again, maybe we would change the mix a little bit, but Billy really uh, was a pro and knew what he was doing in the studio. And so he was just a house engineer at that time at Razor's Edge, but we wanted him to be, to help us with production. So he really did. And it was a fantastic experience for a bunch of young guys to come out and record with him. And, um, I guess I've recorded four albums with him in the, in the subsequent years, but he's been a great, great personal friend and um, fantastic in the studio. That was our first record. And then we recorded Soar with Billy um, in San Francisco once again a year later, this time at Brilliant Studios, which was where the Melvins recorded Houdini. Billy worked on that record at that studio as well. Uh, we recorded there and I believe about seven days start to finish with, uh, with Billy for soar. He has recorded so many great albums through the years and has really made a name for himself and done quite well. 
Well, yeah, so the year later, after Soar, he records Scratch the Surface by Sick of It All, which is interesting for a couple of reasons. One, because it seems completely different from everything else I've yeah. seen that he records. And two, that Scratch the Surface record is kind of notably really thick and meaty as far as the guitars and the bass go. And of course, Soar is a lot more raw sounding and uh, almost almost hollowed out at certain points. Is that sure. something that you guys asked him to do and he delivered? Well, I will say that there was a lot of drug use going on during that recording. So maybe our, uh, our ears weren't quite tuned to, uh, you know, what we, what we wanted versus what we, uh, achieved. I think that it is quite tinny at times, you know, very thin, as you say. Now the drum sound, I'm very happy with sore. The drums sound amazing. And I think, uh, the guitars, especially the bass, suffered a little bit maybe from uh from us just not having enough time or really knowing what the hell we were doing but i think we might have pushed him toward more distorted thinner aching sounds at certain points of that recording i'll tell you one secret that he did for achieving a great drum sound at least the record of sore has was he re-recorded the drums back through a giant PA system in the giant live room. He had the drum tracks and would send them back through these PA speakers in that live room and set up mics at a distance. And so it sounded like a, you know, a football stadium PA system. And so it was a really neat technique. I, I haven't seen that before or since. I don't know if he took that and used it on the Sick of It All record or not. But by that point, he had had even more experience. I know he had been out on the road for the OzFest, doing a lot of live recording and uh, live sound engineering. Uh, I think he even worked for Sick of It All doing sound on that, I want to say 1996 OzFest. You know, he had recorded Sleep and I Hate God and Melvin's and He'd actually play bass on some of the Melvin's tracks on Houdini. And uh, later on, I would join him in his band Spilf in 1996 and 1997. We did a little bit of recording, some live shows here and there, and uh, we had a lot of fun. He's a hell of a producer, I'll say that. You know, I recorded with him and uh, this band Asaking I was in for a minute. And that record is still in print. We recorded a record called Bussy Woods, again, here in San Francisco. Now, a third of the record, Soar, uh, Hollow, Done, Behaved, and Blinded, were all released prior to Soar. Did you guys re-record those songs for Soar, or are they the same recordings? We did. We re-recorded those songs. They had been recorded and released for Allied Recordings on an EP called Unwilling to Explain which was on vinyl, seven-inch vinyl EP and CD as well. And some of those tracks wound up on the Alternative Tentacles compilation record that was released, I believe, 2005. And so those songs were, in our minds, so good and, and so definitive for what we were you know, proud of as far as songwriting to that point. We wanted to have them redone in the studio for sore. So we were, we were really enamored with, you know, patting ourselves on the back for the songwriting. We liked those a lot. And 
we also needed to get something out for for a release as soon as possible so we re-recorded those songs and it was easier for us to to have that re-recorded than it was to write a handful of new songs for the record we didn't think it was going to be a big deal to have uh, those songs re-released on the sore album yeah no not at all and i you're going from ally to this huge label roadrunner in comparison so it makes sense to try to get those songs to a new audience and not only that but the you know the album sounds uh flush with itself so i was that's why i was curious i figured it had to be a a different recording just because they all sound you know they don't sound like separate sessions they all kind of sound like the same mastering and and things like that so i i was curious sure. as to whether or not that happened i don't think there was much sleep that took place <laughs> okay. during that session let's just uh suffice it to say uh they did have apartments for us to uh sleep in but they went unused we uh we we just plowed right through it and um and that might be part of the um you know adding to the whole delirium of it and all of the the weird samples and letting the samples go on and on and on for what seemed like hours uh part of that is the the idea that we were we were just up all night, every night. So the sore promotional pictures and buzz oven pictures at this time, heavily using the Confederate flag. And uh, I think I know that you are kind of a more liberal person. And you also yes. mentioned that the band was on Alternative Tentacles, run by Jello Biafara, who is also on the more liberal side of the Confederate flag. Right, right. So, was that a, a strictly Kirk thing and you just kind of went with it because you're playing in this band? Did you have different views on it then that you do now? What's going on with the Confederate flag? So I think um, you, you you touched on it a little bit in that, uh, yes, uh, I am extremely left-wing liberal and uh, enjoy being surrounded by uh, similar like-minded folks here in the Bay Area. Now, the Confederate flag at that time was it was around it's been used more by kirk um in in uh in these subsequent years since soar was released i know maybe he had a little confederate flag sticker on his guitar but as far as a brand or um you know something that we were purposely using that really wasn't the plan or the idea uh, prior to 1995. I was at the time, you know, thinking that it really was this naive idea of heritage, not hate. As nebulous and as uh, you know, ludicrous as that is, it was considered a symbol of the southern United States in general, if you can believe it, most of us that were born and raised in the South at that time thought that the Confederate flag really was a symbol of of just the South. You know, we grew up watching the Dukes of Hazard TV show. Statues are in every town. You just thought of it as Southern pride and not this idea of slavery 
or white supremacy. It it was it was almost um, sanitized when I was a kid, and so I didn't think much about it. And that's just a testament to my uh, stupidity that I didn't think that it was anything uh, offensive, anything to be explored or even educate myself about because it was so ubiquitous that you you just thought it was again a symbol of southern pride not a symbol of hate as it is understood widely to be in 2020 you know again looking back on it at the time it in my mind was never a a branding symbol or something I wanted to highlight or use. It was just something that was around. It was innocuous in my mind. I didn't think of it as being that. And that is something that I would never uh, purposely use as um, some type of branding material or, or something that we would, we would use in merchandise. I don't recall we ever had that on a t-shirt, but it wasn't something that was, um, you know, thought of as being part of uh, the the buzz of an um, seal of approval, so to speak. Now, I know in, in, in years since, Kirk has used it on, uh, or, or variants of the Confederate battle flag, and I look back on it. I've even talked to him about this, and, and I've confronted him about it and asked him to, to knock it off. It's not something to be proud of. He should stop using that. Well, that's his own trip. I'm not part of the band and I haven't been for 25 years. My experience is it was something, like I said, that was innocuous because I was a brainwashed teenager and I had no idea as the severity of to what that symbol actually meant. Anyway, not my bag. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't get into that shit. Uh, in fact, I think it's, uh, it's asinine. So I'm, I'm definitely not under any impression whatsoever that you uh, were hyping up, you personally, uh, Kirk, I think maybe he was, but you hyping up uh, any sort of white supremacy or, or, or pro-slavery or anything like that. But I was curious of how you thought of it now, especially because you are, you know, this liberal-leaning guy, not even leaning, you're telling me you're pretty aggressively yeah, liberal. Yeah, that's right. I'm aggressively and, liberal, sure. And Kirk is like the QAnon, like, conspiracy theory guy. Uh, Growing up, he was uh, born in Indiana, raised in Florida and North Carolina, and was this skate punk kid, you know, and, and was a bit liberal. So um, he never... Uh, was anything but a liberal punk rocker, but he has just embraced this type of, uh, you know, aesthetic that had this, this Confederate flag thing going on. And I think it was for him more of a, like a Southern culture uh, emblem of like, you know, almost like a, a biker aesthetic and, and not about, severe white supremacy racism. So there was some discrepancy there. Maybe I'll give him the benefit of the doubt and say he is struggling with understanding or comprehending what that symbol actually 
uh, means to people. Most likely a big part of it too, and you can correct me if uh, you think I'm off base here, is that going back even to this dot in the name, that he is going to do things that, that uh, stir up a reaction. And when someone tells him that the Confederate flag, that he shouldn't use it, he's going to double down on that because he's being told not to use it versus what he, maybe some emotional investment he may have in that symbol. Is that fair to say, you think? I, I would think so. I would think that he is, he's a person that will uh, uh, stick to his gun, so to speak, uh, if he's challenged on certain things until he's had adequate time to, uh, to rethink it. And, uh, and he is, he's, uh, he's, he's a bright guy that is, that has made a few mistakes through the years as we all have. Um, but this one is something I can't, you know, a Confederate flag is something I can't get down with. So, if that's 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 his thing, so you know, hopefully he'll have a, an awakening, some type of enlightenment, and come around on that. Honestly, looking at some of this Roadrunner stuff and and looking back on it, trying to you know get any information I had about the band and and uh, contemporaneous uh, notes or whatever about the Roadrunner year, actually, it probably one year that the band was associated with the label. And uh, one thing I found was that the, uh, the drummer or former drummer of Slipknot, what's his name? Joey. Joey Jordison. Jordison. He was a fan of Buzz Oven, Soar. And he said that he listed that record as being one of his all-time favorites from the label and that that record gave him nightmares. I thought that was pretty entertaining to, to know that about him. There were several hangout sessions with Sebastian Bach, um, and he actually wrote with us from a friend's house where we were staying in, in Chelsea neighborhood of, of Manhattan. Uh, we had a show in Red Bank, New Jersey, and he rode in the van with us down to that club in New Jersey, which was his hometown. And we got there early, right? You know, we wanted to load in and do sound check, but there had been gargantuan amounts of heroin done between Sebastian Bach and Kirk. And um, I don't know if he has admitted to any of his uh, prior drug use or abuse, but this was something that um, certainly happened. There's even, somebody's got photographs of us all hanging out in this apartment and Kirk and Sebastian on a couch you know, nodding off and it's uh, hilarious and grotesque all at the same time, you know? And I think Roadrunner was, uh, was an experience for me personally that I uh, really enjoyed. Uh, and I'll never forget getting that first advanced check and Kirk and I going up to like the 30th floor of 30 Rockefeller Plaza and going up to the Chase Manhattan Bank and cashing this check for however many tens of thousands of dollars and carrying the cash out in a briefcase and we're all scruffy and uh yeah, it was it was a lot of fun and it, it really helped uh a bunch of young punks from from the south put their art out there for people to hear. And uh again, you know, I'm not trying to talk to you to like soften our image or what have you of those years but uh, 
I will say that there was quite a bit of hyperbole looking back for people that might not have been present. Some of it's true. I'd say most of it's true, <laughs> and, uh, but not certainly all of it. All right, gratitude, love, and respect to Brian Hill, formerly of Buzz Oven, for spending time with me. A familiar story of a young artist joining a band for the love of the art, having to walk away from it when that love is gone, but ultimately leading to getting to continue their passion. Brian's an extremely talented and prolific bassist, so if you want to check out other albums he's played on, The Men of Porn put out an album in 2001 called Experiments and Feedback, but if you really want to hear that thick fuzz muff stuff, he played on Acid King's Bussy Woods, which just celebrated its 21st birthday this week, and it really rocks, and hopefully didn't turn 21 like I did. So that is Buzz Oven Soar, not only from me, your best friend Ryan Rainbow, but also the buzzer himself, Brian Hill. Next week, we wrap up buzzing with Tad from Roadrunner Records' early signing Toxic, who talks about the influence Soar had on him, and then it's time to get clean and sober as we pogo into the second and final album from popular punk pioneers Black Train Jack. I'm joined by the band themselves to discuss accidentally innovating a genre, ironic pop covers, and even more VH1 references. But while you're waiting for that, email me at meetmeetpod at gmail.com for any feedback or to be featured on Coyote Corner, and what a treat that would be for you. You can go to Apple Podcasts and leave me enough stars on a review to finally defeat Bowser and tell a friend to subscribe to the show because you're the only friends I have. But until then, this has been Meet Meet, and yes... That's the best I could come up with. Bye! What's up, Meepsters? This is Rick Jimenez of the Stiff Shots Podcast Network and host of Thrashers, Slashers, and The Road to WrestleMania, which airs every single Monday where myself and a guest usually discuss a movie and an album of their choice and the WrestleMania from the same year. But this week, I'm joined by incendiary frontman and longtime friend Brendan Garone for a special Rockumentation episode where we discuss the 1999 home video of the legendary and highly lauded New York Hardcore documentary, which features Madball, Crown of Thorns, VOD, and many more. We're also discussing Brendan's introduction to hardcore and everything currently happening in the world of incendiary. Subscribe on whatever platform you get your Stiff Shots Podcast Network shows at and join the overly caffeinated fun with Thrashers, Slashers, and the Road to WrestleMania.